This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Sometimes I see cases that I follow, and um, I'm not entirely sure why I'm following them. This one is is not one of those cases. I actually have this case I've been following for a little while. It's a New Zealand case. And I like following cases from places that aren't the U.S. just to sort of see how their legal systems work. I don't know if you ever do that or not. Yeah, I have. This actually took place in Christchurch, New Zealand, which a couple of years ago there was this mass shooting there that was like really wild where a guy went into a mosque and he had like uh like a gopro camera attached to what he was doing it was it was terrible the footage is on the internet i wouldn't recommend like people looking at it but it drew my attention to this area because of that case and i've been following this wellington case since then or the bylines wellington Today's true crime news source was actually NBC News. Uh, they reported this on August 16th, 2023 from a wire on the Associated Press. And I went to find the Associated Press article and it, it I didn't see it out there. I only saw like a staff uh, byline and a photographer's byline. This uh, The headline is New Zealand jury finds mom guilty of killing her three young daughters in case that shocked the nation. It said Lauren Dickerson had admitted to the killings, but then pleaded not guilty to murder, arguing she was mentally disturbed at the time and didn't know what she was doing was wrong. This is a pretty brief article. It's from August 16th, 2023. It just says a New Zealand jury on Wednesday found a mother guilty of murdering her three young daughters in a case that shocked the nation. Laura Dickinson, uh, 42, had earlier admitted killing her two-year-old twin daughters, Maya and Carla, and their six-year-old sister, Liani, at their home in the town of Tomorrow, T-I-M-A-R-U, Tomorrow, uh, nearly two years ago. But she had pleaded not guilty to murder, arguing she was mentally disturbed at the time of the killings. Prosecutors, however, have pointed to Dickinson's troubling phone messages and online history in the weeks before the killings, including comments about wanting to kill her children and Google searches for most effective overdosing kids. Dickinson and her husband, Graham, both qualified medical professionals, had moved from South Africa to New Zealand just days before the murders. They were seeking a more stable lifestyle away from the turmoil in their home country. Lauren at first tried to kill her children using zip ties and then suffocated them with pillows. She then placed them in their beds under the covers, and she tried to kill herself. Graham, uh, her husband, is an orthopedic surgeon. He returned from a work dinner and found his children dead. He later told police that he knew his wife was struggling with her mental health and with motherhood, but had no idea that she was capable of killing. The guilty verdict came after a four-week trial. Jurors rejected Dickinson's legal defenses under New Zealand's insanity and infanticide laws. Uh, Jurors were not unanimous. They voted 11 to 1 for conviction, which 
under New Zealand law, this is a split that's allowed, not a unanimous verdict uh, like here. Dickinson faces a, a sentence of life imprisonment. Radio New Zealand reported that Dickinson was uh, emotionless in the dock as the verdict was read, and this is in Christchurch High Court, uh, and then cried quietly as she left. Uh, jurors could also be heard crying. Dickinson's parents issued a statement saying the deaths were the result of her daughter of their daughter's debilitating mental illness. We would like to encourage families and individuals around the world to be aware of the symptoms of postpartum depression as early as possible, both for yourselves as well as close family and friends around you. Uh, that's from her parents, Malcolm and Wendy Fox. Uh, Detective Inspector Scott Anderson, uh, he made a statement saying police wanted to express their deepest sympathies to family members who would never get to see the three children grow up and live out their lives. And he said that words cannot express the tragic circumstances of this investigation. This caught my eye because of the location, but also because I saw something fascinating happen. So first of all, I don't know a lot about New Zealand's criminal justice system or their laws. So I was having to read a lot to catch up as things like moved along. And I've only done that in a few big cases in other countries, um, like in real time. I, I did it with a, the Amanda Knox case. I was very interested in that case. Oscar Pistoria, I followed his case. This one was interesting to me because very early on in the trial, actually, it might have even been pre-trial, the prosecutors seem to think that being on the internet and like cognitively searching for things means that you can't possibly be mentally ill. So they literally stated that in their opinion, the, there can be no mentally ill people on the internet. And I was shocked by that. Oh, that's interesting because, uh, I mean, it didn't necessarily say that here, right? No, it doesn't say it in this article, but the way that they they like used all of this as proof of premeditation. And their point was she couldn't have been snapping because like she couldn't have been mentally ill. She knew things that what she was doing was wrong because of how this all broke out. I don't agree with them. I'll just go ahead and say that. I think a lot of people on the Internet are mentally ill. Well, I was going to say I didn't know where you were going with this and there are a lot of people in general that have mental illnesses, mental health struggles. They are most certainly a lot of people with mental health issues on the internet. You're absolutely right. However, a lot of mentally ill people commit crimes that they are perfectly capable of being held accountable for. Yeah, I agree with you. I just, so I had a little trouble with this one in like, how do you reconcile? Okay. So this is a mother with postpartum depression of two year old twins and a six year old. Right. I like, it's like just from a personal perspective, I've never really understood how you wrap your head around uh, like putting experts up on postpartum depression. I know it's real. And I know that it's like serious. Postpartum depression is very real. I would say that most mothers go through it. And part of it is 
the reason I say most mothers go through it is because uh, inevitably there is a difference between like what you think motherhood is going to be like versus what motherhood actually is. Right. And that difference is going to create a depression, like no matter what, because I feel like until you experience being a parent, you really have no idea how it's going to be. And it's, it's very different from not being a parent. I don't want to put a negative spin on being a parent because it's, it's not that it's a negative thing. It's just very different and it's hard. And I think that a lot of times, I think no matter what, there's a bit of postpartum depression. Now, uh, there was a, you know, you said that the parents issued a statement about encouraging other families and individuals to be aware of postpartum depression symptoms and others. And I would say that is a very uh, relevant statement because people do need to be aware um, because I, the mom is never going to recognize it enough. I mean, sometimes they recognize it enough and they get help, but I would say grandparents and people outside of the house should really look for the sign. Unfortunately, I hear, I feel like every young parent or, you know, parent with young children has said like, oh, I can't take this anymore, right? In a gesture type way. And it's never taken seriously. And most of the time, it isn't a serious statement where at the end of it, a mother kills her children, Because of that, any sort of help that could have been had is often overlooked because people don't want to get involved. But this mom was desperate, and I don't know why. I don't know the ins and outs of this case. This is the first time I've heard anything about it. It was so overwhelming to her that she couldn't, uh, she didn't feel like there was any other way. And, you know, obviously, I don't know how she tried to commit suicide, but I feel pretty confident that, you know, that would have been her preferred ending because she just didn't see a way to make her life work having these, you know, three kids that she had to take care of. And I can empathize with that situation because it can be really hard and the struggle is absolutely real and it's how you sort of deal with it and make your way through it. Yeah, I so you know, I think the case that people associate the most with what was going on here in my opinion is Andrea Yates. Right. Um, and so she had five children, is that right? Yeah, five? Yeah, she had five children. So that's that's a case from June of 2001. She had five children, very small children. It, it's a horrible case. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity in 2006. It was a very complex trial that was put together in her case. And I don't, you know, nobody won there. There was no, like, that's not a winning verdict for that trial for the prosecutors. They were very much against the idea that like, uh, it was mental illness that, that was behind it all, but it was pretty clear that case, it was stacked in a way that this is the case where part Dietz got shot down. I don't know if you remember him. He had said that there was a Law & Order episode that she was feigning the 
the motions of the uh, one of the suspects in the episode, but it turns out that he just made that up. So that case, you know, it had a lot of attention for a lot of different reasons. And in my head, I always like I wonder like what is the effect of like mental health situations on these sentences? Because this woman arguably is going to get, get a life sentence. I don't know that for sure. I suspect it that she's going to get a life sentence out of this. And she's got to live with the fact that like these three kids, the twins and then her six-year-old daughter. And if you have a six-year-old, like that's going to have a profound effect on your mental health going forward that you took their life. And I know that's like, it gets really strange when you have like multiple victims like this. Cause I believe she's a victim of herself. The husband's a victim. The children are clearly victims. Right. Where I'm going with that? I do. And so um, I would absolutely. So I'm weird about this kind of stuff because when you find yourself in that situation, uh, one of the responsibilities of being an adult and being a parent is to figure out how not to do that. Right. I don't know what the breaking point is where I would be able to say, she doesn't deserve to spend the rest of her life in jail. What, what would you say that you would think? Well, I don't know how you, okay. So I don't know how you, I, I could say, I think the, the clearest thing I can say about this is I don't think, at least in the United States, that our criminal justice system is truly set up to handle situations like the one I described that like just had a jury verdict in New Zealand, but also like we weren't really set up for Andrea Yates and we still like, we would struggle with that. uh, If we had that same trial in 2023, we would have the exact same struggles that we had in 2006, which I think was her, there was a series of a, a lot of legal stuff going on with, Andrea Yates, and she had basically confessed. So, and she was, and I'm just remembering here, but um, she was of the impression that the world was evil and terrible place, and that she was doing the best thing she could for her children by killing them. Yeah, there was a lot of religious overtones to that case as well. I don't know if you remember this, but she was found guilty the first time. And and that was shortly after. It was in like 2002. She was found guilty. So it was shortly after the crimes. And then they wanted her to give the... What year did that case happen? What year did the murders happen? Yeah, the murders. Okay, so the murders happened on June 20th of 2001. Okay. And then she's found guilty in March of 2002. And then it works its way back through... They wanted the death penalty really bad. And that's how that first case gets hung up because the jury refused the death penalty. So they sent us her to life in prison. She was eligible for parole in like 2040 or something. But the Texas Court of Appeals reversed it in 2005. And they reversed it because of the Park Deeds testimony where he ended up having to admit that he just straight up made up the episode about of Law and Order about the woman who had drowned her children and being acquitted of murder by reason of insanity. That was like, at the time, this is sort of like the infancy of the internet. We know now the fact that all that happened was a huge deal. So she ends up like, she ended up getting out on bail at one point and then she goes back 
January 2006, she enters pleas of not guilty by reason of insanity. July 2006, she's found not guilty by reason of insanity, and she gets committed. So she's in a low security, like, mental health facility in Texas. She's not getting out anytime soon, but at least she's someplace that, at least on the surface in Texas, pretends like they are, like, cognitive of her not really being all there while the crimes were occurring and her being unable to distinguish right and wrong. So fast forward to this current case, which is taking place in another country in 2023, where prosecutors have basically come forward and said, we believe she was planning this because she was on the internet. And a Google search indicating that you're looking for the best way to kill your children, in my opinion, does not necessarily mean you are not insane or you are not. And, and I'm saying that from a legal, a legal and a medical perspective. Okay. And uh, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I just know that I've had my own sort of do in doing research about like, you know, what is insanity? What does the insanity defense mean? and all the different things that go along with it. And then like from a legal perspective, like what, what does it take for mental illness to be such a thing that a defendant won't be held uh, accountable as if they were guilty because they truly didn't understand the difference. Right. Right. And so I've, I've had a lot, I and I don't have a definitive answer, but I have a lot of thoughts on that. And I know that someone who has postpartum depression, even at its very worst state, it's unlikely that that's going to correlate. Yeah, I, I don't know that you can put all this together in a way that makes sense, but... Where we had left off in the last episode, this ties to that for a number of reasons. We were talking about Kevin Green, which I'm pretty sure you know that case pretty well at this point, right? I do. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, something really, really terrible happened when it comes to Kevin Green's case. And like a brief rundown, kind of where we left off is Kevin Green is sentenced to prison for attacking his wife, Diana Green, based on her eyewitness testimony. And in the course of that, Diana Green, who had been pregnant, she loses uh, their daughter. The, the daughter dies. Have you followed along, like, kind of in, like, real time of what happened to him and, like, how things went in terms of the aftermath, because I don't like we haven't mentioned to the audience the ultimate outcome of Kevin Green's case, which we're about to do. Right. So initially they investigated the case. He was questioned. There were some there were elements of his story the night of the attack that led investigators to be suspicious of him. Right. Right. And uh, it, that included he didn't he wanted a burger and he didn't go to the burger place that was right across the street. He went to one that was three miles away. Yeah. And they found that sus suspicious. And they actually sort of 
thought that his like warm cheeseburger in the Jack in the Box bag was like a like specifically done f- to be an alibi for him, right? Correct. Yeah. And so uh, there were some conclusions that were jumped to that ultimately we find out much much later were uh, they were just it was just facts or circumstances surrounding what happened with him that night. And there was nothing really, uh, they were completely benign. There was nothing suspicious about what he did. You know, I, I can't say that I fought investigators here because you've got a situation where a man is, he was at least fussing with his nine and a half month pregnant wife right before he leaves to go get himself a burger and uh, that that's like an undisputed thing that happened, right? Yeah. And he come he leaves the door unlocked and he comes back and finds his wife nearly beaten to death. I don't blame investigators for going, well, I mean, the husband did it, right? Cuz all of that sort of indicates the husband probably did do it especially when you add on that statistically it is like it's way more likely than not that you know the husband did it but it is their job to make sure right and so what happens is diana diana is taken to the hospital um she is there's brain activity and she's breathing, I believe, on her own. Um, but she's in an unconscious state and she's suffering from brain damage. And then uh, they're checking on the fetal, they're monitoring the fetus. And the fetal heart rate drops and eventually stops. And they do an emergency C-section. And the baby, of course, doesn't make it. And so it takes about six weeks, I think, for her to make any sort it to for her to I don't know how long it took her to wake up but from waking up and being rehabilitated from being brought to the hospital the night of the attack it's about six weeks before she returns and and she returns to her parents home with her husband right they don't go back to the apartment that they lived in she cognitively and functionally is it's not quite starting completely over, but it's very close to starting completely over because of the brain damage she endured during the attack. Correct. And so I put this stuff together, like just from different timelines that I've heard, but he was arrested 10 months before his trial and his trial was in in the October following the attack in September. Yeah. So it's a year and change. So we're talking about, she was in the hospital for like six weeks. And so we're talking about him being arrested like within two weeks after she's out of the hospital, right? Because he was in custody for 10 months before his trial began. Yeah. Okay. So I've sort of put all that together. Um, I haven't seen it laid out that way any anywhere, but I've heard those specific uh, times mentioned. So we've got somebody that's like, cognitively and functionally starting over from a very traumatic brain injury who suddenly says, cause she didn't remember anything initially. 
And then suddenly she has a very vivid memory of her husband doing this to her. And that's when the police arrest him. So I, you, you asked me, was I following in real time what was happening? And so that's what I have. That's okay. what was happening to him between the time, like the night of the incident, then up until like his trial. So he's in custody those 10 months before the October trial. And it's October 1980. Yeah, it's October of 1980. And so what ends up happening is, okay, she is the linchpin for him being convicted. So November 7th, 1980, the court sentences Green to 15 years to life. Now, stuff keeps happening in this case for a long time. But that's 1980. Where we get the most interesting piece of information about this case won't come for a number of years. Now, I know you've dug into... I, I consumed a lot of media in this case, which I don't I don't tend to rely on, but I wanted to go so I went back through the Los Angeles Times because I want to put that out there that that's one of the sources. There is an entry, although it's not a it's not a very helpful entry uh, at the University of Michigan Law Schools, like their uh, national registration or national registry of exonerations. There's the Innocence Project had this case at one point. I read article after article after article in this case. This guy is in prison for a long time. And the way that his case becomes super interesting is a statistical anomaly that is something I have never seen before. Now, I will say, if you go looking for, for more information about this case, and, and it is a fascinating case, as, as small as the amount of information that is directly tied to it on the internet is, this is a fascinating case for a number of reasons. And I think that this situation, because uh, we talked last episode about unreliable witnesses, I think that this situation the cause of being an unreliable witness is the, the TBI for this woman and the rehabilitation of uh, Diana Green. And I think that the other, and she doesn't go by that name anymore. She, she has a different name. I don't want to get into that. I think that there's some element of the losing the child that goes into this. And I think those two elements together are never really addressed uh, by the defense because the defense is de- denied the ability to have an expert who cross-examines the evidence. Now, what makes this case so crazy is in 1982, the Supreme Court of the state of California has a hearing about it. They affirm the conviction. That means that they basically are saying that this case um, is, is proper. Everything was good. Like from a legal perspective, as far as moving around in the system. And then that statistical anomaly that I was talking about, it happens. Uh, and to do that, we have to talk about like a completely different case. So uh, I'm going to give you a rundown on, on what happened there um, in the other case. A man is apprehended in January of 1996. And he already has a criminal record. He has... Uh, multiple parole violations and they make a link that by the way if you watch this so i would say cold case files is okay did you think that one was okay yeah it was it was it was pretty good yeah 
there's not a lot of audio on this one, but I will say that uh, which one was it you were saying to avoid? Was it the, the perfect, perfect murder? murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the perfect murder has a completely no, they, different take. I don't want to say avoid it. I, I, cause I don't care. Um, I'm just going to say that if you want to see how a narrative can be spun completely different from what actually happened, you could watch that. Okay, so that's that's what we're considering for the perfect murder, though. I'm not saying, like, don't watch it. I'm just saying, like, it illustrates uh, my point about how any sort of media that's put out about any case in any uh, true crime arena, it has a narrative. And the reason the narrative is there is because uh, somebody has taken all this information and tried to make a story that a viewer can follow. Right. And that's the narrative. And there's no question that, uh, narratives can vary. And, um, in this case, it, with the perfect murder episode, it, it's, it's an, it's a prime example of how like they completely on the nar- narrative, uh, and I, I don't know when that ca- when that uh, show was out. Maybe twenty fifteen. I, I don't know exactly, but it it's not like from the nineties. It's more recently, and um, so I wouldn't say don't watch it. I'm just saying, uh, just you know, process what you're observing. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. So I'm going to do this a little differently before I get to that killer, uh, because the information is out there that. Like you could make a really good picture of this if you go back and you read through the newspapers, starting with what's considered to be the first victim in in a series of murders. It's considered that there are six victims here overall, but there are more than six names that I'm going to put out there because there are about five or six survivors. So the first thing that happens related to this string of events that affects Kevin Green is on July 19th, 1979, we're in that same time frame. A man enters a Costa Mesa apartment of a woman named Jane through an open dining room window. He grabs a piece of wood and he hits her over the head several times and then he raped her. At some point in time later, a concerned friend came to check on Jane and they called the police. She was taken to the hospital and a rape kit was collected. This rape kit would have valuable evidence in it for later. So for a month, Jean is in a coma. Her skull has been fractured, and she required a permanent, what's known as a tracheotomy. So a tracheotomy means they have made an incision to allow her to breathe, and it's in her throat, and she has this for the rest of her life. Then, on February 2nd, 1980, a woman named Ada was locking her car in the underground parking garage at her apartment complex when a man struck her from behind numerous times with a metal pipe. He then dragged her several feet away. He removed her necklace from around her neck. He looked through her purse, and he lifted up her skirt. Now, Ada got up and was able to run to the first floor of the apartment building. She So she was in the underground parking garage. She gets to the first floor. She bangs on the apartment manager's door, and then she loses consciousness. A witness across the street observed a man standing over Ada, and they yelled at him to stop, and the man ran away. 
Ada's fingers were so swollen from trying to protect her head while being hit with the pipe that paramedics had to cut off her rings from her fingers. When an officer arrived from about a block away, a man ran across the street in front of his patrol car. The officer could clearly see that the man had blood stains on his shirt and his pants, and, he, and there was blood on his hands. He was briefly detained, and he provided the officer with his Marine Corps ID card. So this guy is also a Marine. Kevin Green was a Marine. Once the witness indicated that this man looked like the person who had uh, been attacking Ada, they take him into custody. And his name is Gerald Parker. The officer noted that Gerald Parker did not appear to be intoxicated. He was calm. He was cooperative. And another officer was able to locate the bloody pipe, which was eight inches long and three inches in diameter. Near the pipe was a gold and pearl necklace that was identified as Ada's necklace. Nine months after the attack, on October 2nd of 1980, Parker is convicted in L.A. County Superior Court of robbing Ada and inflicting great bodily injury upon her during the commission of this robbery. Two weeks after the attack on Ada, on February 15, 1980, so before Parker's trial, a 13-year-old girl named Paula was walking home from a drugstore in Tustin. So that's the location of our incident with Diana Green. She had just been to her father's funeral, funeral, Paula had. A black van drove past her and pulled over. A man gets out of the driver's side of the vehicle. He opens the side door of the van and walks around to the back. It looks like he's checking the tires on the van. But as Paula walked by him, the man grabbed her sweater. He punched her in the face and the neck, and he threw her into the van. He drove around for about 25 minutes, and then he stopped the van in the shopping center parking lot. He closed the curtain that separated the back of the van from the driver's area, and he asked Paula if she'd ever been raped before. She told him no, and his response was, well, this is what it's like. He tore a towel into strips. He put some of them into her mouth, one around her head, and he used another to tie her hands together. After he raped her, he asked her what she had in the bag that she was carrying, if she was going to tell her parents what had happened, and if she would identify him in a police lineup. She answered no to the last two questions. He drove her to an alley, and he led her out of the van. Paula made mental notes of details about the man who had done this to her and the van. And when she got home, she told her mother what had happened, and they called the police. Three days later, an investigator from the Orange County Sheriff's Department contacted the military police at Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, and Gerald Parker was called in for questioning. Before investigators could show Paula a photo of Parker, he confessed. Parker admitted that if Paula had been older, he probably would have killed her. On March 13th of 1980, Parker was convicted in Orange County Superior Court of kidnapping and raping Paula. So this is before Ada's trial. He gets sentenced to six years in prison. That's a lot. Six years in prison? 
Yeah, you get six years in prison. That's for Paula's situation. I don't think that's a lot. No, no, I'm saying that's a lot of... Oh, information, yes. Yeah, okay. While he's in there, DNA experts start to look at what's going on with him. And this takes years, by the way. Did you see how they kind of catch him in all of this? I saw... I'm not entirely clear um, what he's in custody for. I assume it's what you were saying, right? Well, he so he gets the two sentences for Ada's case and for Paula's case. And then on February 13th of 1984, he beats his roommate, David, while David is sleeping at the California Correctional Institution. A... uh, a CO on the floor found a 24 inch long piece of steel that was spattered with blood on the floor under one of the bunks in their shared room. And David ends up getting stitches. He goes to the hospital for a week following the attack. And on June 1st, he gets convicted in Kern County of assault with a deadly weapon on David. Okay. That's how he's like, he, st- he, he keeps, he keeps himself in prison for a while. That's why he doesn't have more homicides. So I'm not sure if he gets out first and he's back in uh, for a parole violation or something else. I'm not really sure uh, why exactly he's in custody. I know it's brought up that uh, they, you know, they're trying to solve this bedroom basher case, right? Yeah, I guess we should talk about that for a second because it does, it is kind of a separate thing. Okay. Um, let's, Let's just run this, this other set of cases down for people. There are a series of murders in California that are known under different monikers. Now, one of those cases is known as the bludgeon killer, and the other one is known as the bedroom basher. And if you look up Gerald Parker, that's gonna both of those are gonna link back to him in, in the most like basic form. Here's here's those murders in a nutshell. December 1st, 1978, a 17-year-old named Sandra Fry had a man enter through an open bedroom window carrying a two-by-four. The man hits Fry several times with the board, and he attempts to rape her, but he can't get an erection. So he ends up masturbating to completion and ejaculating on the victim's body. When Sandra's roommate returns home and sees Sandra, she calls the police. Sandra gets transported to the emergency room by ambulance, and she's pronounced dead. That's in December 1978. Four months later, almost five months, April 1st, 1979, in Costa Mesa, a 21-year-old woman named Kimberly Rawlins had left the front door unlocked, and a man came inside carrying a two-by-four piece of wood and struck her several times. When her roommate came home a couple of hours later, She found Kimberly dead and sort of arranged as if she had been assaulted. So during her autopsy, Kimberly Ron's tampon was collected for evidence and they found semen on it. That semen was later tested for DNA to see if they could find a match to her killer. In the early morning hours of September 15th, 1979, so just a few months after Kimberly's murder, A man enters the Costa Mesa apartment of a 31-year-old woman named Marilyn Carlton. And he gets in through an unlocked sliding patio door. 
The man beats her during an attempted rape, causes severe head injuries, and she ends up dying the following day. A nine-year-old boy, who turns out to be the victim's son, witnessed the attack and was able to describe the attacker to police. Fifteen days later is when Diana Green is attacked in her apartment in Tustin, which we've already talked about. According to like later information, this is what happened there. The front door was unlocked, and the man enters the apartment. He hits Diana Green in the head. He rapes her while she's unconscious. And when police officers arrived, they actually noticed a hole in her forehead. The hole is so deep, they could see brain matter. She's in a coma, and then she spends a ton of time recovering, which we've already discussed. Uh, and DNA swabs are collected from her, from her rape kit during that time. On October 6, 1979, so just a few days later, a man enters the apartment of 24-year-old Deborah Kennedy, which is not far from Diana Green's apartment. He enters through a bedroom window. He hits her on the head as she lies asleep next to the couch, and he rapes her. The attack caused severe head trauma and a brain hemorrhage, and she later dies of her injuries. There are There's semen at this scene, but police noted later there is no other evidence of an intruder being uh, at the scene of this crime on October 6, 1979, with Deborah Kennedy's case. 14 days later, October 20th, 1979, a man enters the apartment of Deborah Lynn Sr., pretending to be a jogger. He enters through a bathroom window, and he leaves a palm print of his left hand. When uh, Deborah gets home, the man hit her several times in the head with a blunt object, and he moved her unconscious body into the bedroom, and he rapes her. After the roommate, roommate comes home, police and paramedics are called, and she's pronounced dead at the scene. So those are, if you look at this, Sandra Fry, Kimberly Rawns, Marilyn Carrollton, and then Chantal Green, Deborah Kennedy, and Deborah Sr., these are our six murders. Does that make sense? Even yes. though Diana wasn't murdered, that's those are our victims. Right? Yeah. Okay. If you go back in time, uh, specifically with the, the Los Angeles Times, I went back to July 25th, 1988. And so Gerald Parker is in prison at that point, off and on. What uh, caught my eye first was an Eric Healy article from July 25th, 1988. And it says police are still looking for leads in 79 bludgeon killings. And that's like a reference to 1979, not that there are 79. Here's what it says at the time. Sitting at his desk, Costa Mesa Police Sergeant Sam Cordero browses through four bundles of police reports. He's looking for a killer. He admits that the intensity of his search has waned somewhat and the prospects are bleak for catching the bludgeon killer who in 1979 sexually assaulted and beat four Costa Mesa women, three of them fatally. We're going to have to get lucky to solve this one, he said. So far, there have been no case cracking leads. All of the victims lived within blocks of the intersection of Harbor Boulevard and Victoria Street. 
two women, Kimberly Gay Rollins, 21, and Marilyn Carlton, 31, had apartments on Avocado Street. The last victim, 17-year-old Deborah Lynn Sr., lived nearby on Maple Street. The only woman to survive an attack by the so-called bludgeon killer, albeit narrowly, is 24-year-old Jane. Today, she speaks with an implanted voice box and breathes through a hole in the remnants of her throat from a tracheotomy she underwent as a result of the attack. Jane has moved out of the area and changed her name. At the height of the hysteria in 1979, Costa Mesa was covered with posters of the police composite sketch of the suspect. It was drawn from a description by Carlton's son, who saw his mother's killer bolt from their apartment. The killer was described as strongly built, 25 to 30 years old, about 5 feet 10 inches tall, with an olive complexion and pockmarks on his cheeks. Pamela Sr., mother of the late Deborah Sr., can't forget the face on the posters. To even consider that he's had good days, like Christmas, Thanksgiving, days that he's deprived my child of, she said. It's very hard to accept that. But Senior said she is convinced that the police are still doing their best to find the killer. The police have really have done a great deal, she said. I know they haven't forgotten us. But for the mother of Kim Rollins, there is no solace, said Kim's sister, Cheryl. My mother is not any different today than she was three days after the funeral. That was her baby. Kim was the third child that her mother had lost, Cheryl said. One son died as an infant, and a second, Earl, was killed in a hit-and-run crash on his motorcycle. Like Kim, Earl was 21 years old, and his killer was never found. After Kim Rollins' death, her mother moved to Texas. Cheryl, who lived next door to Kim, moved to another Orange County community. Months earlier, the two sisters had shared an apartment. Cheryl recalled the last day she saw Kim alive. They were clowning around during the drive home from an Irvine medical laboratory where they worked together. Fortunately, I have that memory, Cheryl said. I'm lucky. I'm one of the people who got to know her. Costa Mesa police still receive a couple of calls a year from people saying they have seen someone fitting the description of the bludgeon killer. But most of those leads turn out to be dead ends. We don't know what that guy looks like now, said Costa Mesa Lieutenant Rick Johnson. He could be bald for all we know. According to the psychological profile prepared for police by psychiatrists and other experts specializing in criminology, the killer was driven by a need to control women, a need that ultimately was satisfied only by killing them. He probably was unintelligent and extremely insecure, police said. If the killer was scared away by the intense publicity and poster campaign at the time of the murders, he may be committing brutal crimes somewhere else. However, with no fingerprints to link the killer to other crimes, police at this point can only keep a lookout for suspiciously similar cases in newspapers, police bulletins, and most wanted lists. There are no more leads to track, no more theories to test. As time goes on, the chances of finding a killer lessen. If police can't solve a crime in 10 days, then it's very unlikely they'll solve it, Cordero said. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this article. So first of all, they're only focusing on four of these. When when was that article written? Nineteen eighty-eight. Okay. So it's nine years after the crimes. Right, and by that point in time, Diana Green's husband had been convicted. Yeah, he's in prison. Right, and so she wouldn't have been considered, you know, part of that group. Correct. 
I find it really interesting because I, I did a little bit of research and I'm trying to remember. Tustin is uh, where Diana Green was. Yes. And uh, her attack happened on October 30th, 1979. From what I remember, like, I think Tustin has about 80,000 people. Does yeah. that sound right? Okay. And um, so it's, it's what, medium size, I guess? I don't really know if that's considered big or something. Well, so you mean Tustin from the like perspective of like the census population? Well, because it's, it's it's in Orange County. Does that make sense? Right, and so basically, I guess what I'm I'm sort of getting at is, um, like I said, Diana Green's attack happened on September 30th, 1979, in an apartment in Tustin, and then on October 6, 1979. So that's six days later. Also in a Tustin apartment. 24-year-old Deborah Kennedy uh, was killed. Yes. In a very similar way. Yep. Okay. Now, uh, the reason I was asking, like, what is the size of Tustin is there should have been immediate connections made here between Diana Green and Deborah Kennedy. Because you're talking about an area that has about 80,000 people and you have within six days two very similar crimes. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with you to some extent, but you're talking like, okay, so the areas that we're talking about here, as far as like if you look at Tustin and Costa Mesa on a map, they're only 15 minutes apart, but both areas have 100,000 people. I mean, 75 to 100,000 people, give or take. I, that's fine. Um, and completely I, different jurisdictions. No, but... Both Deborah and Diana were both in Tustin. Yeah, you're right. And so because of that, there should have been a connection made. Oh, I agree with you. I'm I'm trying to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, but I agree with you. I keep trying to figure out how this case gets sort of lost. Oh, I know how it got lost. (laughs) Oh, just because they had him, the husband? The reason the case, the reason that um, the husband, they have the husband, is because of the wife's testimony. Yeah, which is sort of what I was getting at here, and that's why I started this little series that we're doing with the unreliable witness article, which itself is not the best article on the planet, but it was interesting. Um, and I have one more article I wanted to mention today, and you know these episodes are are. There's not a lot of them, but there are a couple of these, and I don't want to make them super long because the information can be hard to digest if I just dump it all on people. This article actually comes from 1995, and it's out of the Orange County Register, and it's by a guy named Stuart Pfeiffer. This one is titled DA's Target, Ghost of Murder's Past. I don't think this is available on the mainstream internet anymore. Some people had it linked to some old Wayback Machine links. Uh, there was a Google site on the Wayback Machine that had this one. It's an interesting article. It's from December 20th, 1995. And I just want to point that out because that means this article was posted at Christmas time. And that is always strange to me when they post this kind of article at Christmas time. Do you know what I mean? I don't find it strange, but okay. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. The subtitle for the article is. The OC prosecutor hopes to use technology such as DNA testing 
to solve around 110 murders. A sketch of the killer's pockmarked face once was posted across Orange County, where his notorious acts caused such a panic in 1979 that many residents bought guns or simply moved out of town. He would slip into women's apartments to sexually assault his victims, and then he would savagely beat them. Police said six of his victims, three of them in Costa Mesa, died. At the time, there was little police detectives could do with skin, semen, or hair samples the killer left behind, and those crimes, like hundreds of others in Orange County, went unsolved. Now, the district attorney's office hopes DNA testing and other new technology can help pinpoint suspects in those killings and more than 100 other unsolved murders. Prosecutors hope to begin working with detectives and sheriff's criminalists early next year to re-examine unsolved killings stretching back to 1972, according to Deputy District Attorney Mike Jacobs. We need to reopen some of these cases like they're new cases and just start over. We'll completely re-examine them. The Sheriff's Crime Laboratory has already sent DNA evidence from some unsolved cases to a California Department of Justice laboratory in Berkeley, where the DNA fingerprints of more than 4,000 of the state's sex offenders are filed. And fingerprints is in quotes there. They're just referencing that it's the unique profile. The program will focus on about 110 unsolved homicides, a majority of them involving sexual assaults that would be susceptible to new crime-solving techniques. Those are only a fraction of the county's homicides that have yet to be solved. Between 1972 and 1994, Orange County police agencies investigated 2,479 homicides and cleared 1,591, meaning almost 900 murders have likely gone unsolved, according to California Department of Justice statistics. In several of the older cases, fingerprints may not have yet been entered into a state fingerprint database, a simple task that can help identify a suspect. In others, prosecutors and detectives will try to obtain suspects' blood samples and match DNA markers against evidence a killer left behind. We felt there was a high likelihood that there would be evidence we could apply new technology to that has not been available until recently, said Jacobs. There's a number of cases with semen stains on objects, clothing, or obtained from an autopsy. Even in some cases from the 70s, the evidence has been properly preserved. Jacobs said many of the killers who have gotten away with murder could be serving time for similar crimes. Wherever they are, whether they're down the street from you and me, whether they're in prison or whether they're dead, we want to get answers to that, said Jacobs. Jacobs, who is working on the project with Deputy District Attorney Mel Jensen, said he noticed similarities in many of the homicides, and he believes the project may uncover several serial killers. There are striking similarities in a number of these. The scope of the program depends in part on a $500,000 grant application to a county agency that prosecutors said could be used to staff two attorneys, two investigators, and two sheriff's criminalists. If the county provides less money, prosecutors could apply for a federal grant. These are some of the most aggravated cases that we have, according to Orange County District Attorney Michael Capizzi. I don't know if you can put a price tag on the value of identifying these people and getting them off the streets. Capizzi said he hopes sheriff's officials will agree to assign criminalists from their crime lab to the project, something that would be more likely to happen if the grant is approved. 
They have just an outstanding lab that is recognized as one of the finest in the nation. They would be an integral part of making it a success, Capizzi said. Once we get the money, I certainly anticipate that they would eagerly embrace it. Sheriff's Lieutenant Ron Wilkerson said he could not comment about the project until his department had a chance to review it. Jacob said it's important to begin working on the project soon because the Department of Justice will expand the number of sex offenders on its database from 4,000 to about 34,000 by 1997. The, da- the database has already been used to solve one crime in Northern California. It's going to be extremely valuable, said Michael Van Winkle, a Department of Justice spokesman. Sex offenders tend to commit sex crimes over and over again. They also leave the kind of evidence, sperm and semen, that allows for real good typing for DNA. Jacob said he hopes the program will include regular meetings where detectives from across the county can exchange information about open homicide cases. Up until now, there has never been one place to go to compare unsolved murders, he said. We want to change that. The program will not succeed without the cooperation of county police agencies. Some of the response initially may be lukewarm because some people may find it as intervening. You know what? We have a lot of unsolved murder cases out there and something has to be done. The program was praised by detectives contacted by the Orange County Register. If there was a murder that took place in 1980 or 1979 and we still haven't made an arrest, we've obviously had it long enough to do everything we can with our resources, said Lieutenant Sam Brown who's a spokesman for the Orange Police Department. Our primary goal is to ensure our community remains a safe place to live, work, and raise children. If that means sitting down with a DA to talk about some expertise that was not available at the time, we're going to be a part of that. Costa Mesa Police Detective Linda Gilser, who investigated the string of beating deaths in 1979, said she would consider coming back from retirement to work the cases with the DA's office. Your most memorable cases are the ones with innocent victims who could be your daughter, your wife, your sister, and they are unsolved. Nothing would please me more than to use the new things on the scientific horizon to solve them before my lifetime is over, she said. And then they have a chart listing the still unsolved cases between 1972 and 1994. And it says that Orange County police agencies took reports on 888 more homicides than those they cleared. So in 1972... There were, 40, uh, there were 74 homicides, 58 were cleared, 73, 50 homicides, 42 were cleared, 74, 60 homicides with 38 being cleared, 75, 63 homicides with 57 being cleared, 76 had 83 homicides with 70 being cleared, 77 had 71 homicides with 55 being cleared, 78 had 77 homicides with 46 being cleared, and then 79 had 91 homicides with 72 being cleared. And it it goes down all the way to 94 for the totals to be what I said above, 2,479 total homicides, 1,591 of those are cleared. What is interesting about that article? What word do they use repeatedly there that has nothing to do with what we're talking about? I don't know. Unsolved. Oh, unsolved. Okay. So. Well, what do you mean? Chantel Green's homicide is not unsolved. Well, right. But they don't bring that up, do they? No, not here. They don't know yet. This whole Ghosts of Murders Past thing is fascinating to me because here's what I started to realize. Kevin Green's case being fixed is a complete 
fluke. Yes, it is a complete fluke. You're absolutely right. So that's where I wanted to leave it for today. Um, I have one more episode in this like sort of series of episodes here uh, to sort of wrap this one up. And then we're going to move on to another uh, serial killer. Did you have anything else on this? Like as far as like what I just read, because like it's fascinating to me to watch this like sort of in I got kind of nostalgic for this because I remember this stuff being in the papers mm-hmm. when DNA was becoming a thing. Right. Uh, do you have any idea what the outcome has been? Of this mm-hmm. program? Uh, no, but I'm going to try and incorporate it in the next episode. Do you? No, I don't know. Uh, not that specific. Um, it, not what they were specifically talking about in that article, but uh, adding 30,000 you know, samples to the database. And I'm trying to think, is this before CODIS? Okay, so first of all, I had to do a lot of math for what's coming up in the next episode. <laughs> I just want to point that out now. Um, but this would, okay, so this system that they're putting together here, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. This is 95. The FBI pilot for CODIS was in 1990. 94, though, Congress had passed the DNA Identification Act, which, okay, so from 1989, to about 1992, CODIS was not an official regulated thing. 1994, it's officially created and accredited and all those things happen afterwards, 1994. So this is timed with that. This is the ramp up to the federal government doing this. And this becomes sort of a a, a program that's being watched among several programs in the country. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's where we're headed here. And that's what was so fascinating with me about this is they're setting out to solve this series of unsolved cases, not just the veteran bachelor cases either. It sprawls out into cases they are still solving today. Yeah. And they recognize that that's where they were headed, right? Yeah. So to close this episode out, Kevin Green being exonerated at all is a complete fluke. And we now have, you know, a new player has sort of entered the game with Gerald Parker, who we're going to start talking about him a little bit and what his relationship to all of this is. And I find all of this fascinating to look at, even if you think of it more as a, like a historical archival perspective, that's just a fascinating place in time. Um, It is fascinating. Um, and all the DNA stuff and the fluke of this case. I agree. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So, like, I'm reading about Gerald Parker, which, and, and I have read about him a number of times. I have some of the people that are going to come up in these other episodes are, uh, they're completely unknown. Um, and some of them are, you know, the bigger serial killers that relate back to, like, this one project. But you know who I couldn't stop thinking about while I was, like, looking at Parker and his crimes? 
Um, who? Bundy. Oh, really? Why? Because Bundy's doing the same thing. Bundy was a basher. Right, but um, up until the end, uh, actually, I don't know. Uh, he he had that weird like "come help me" thing going on there. Yeah, he definitely had that going on. He was. But you're right, as far as like the like the sorority house, right? I mean, he went in. That's what he did there. He bashed. Which was after the basher. Uh, no. Wouldn't it have been like, or it was 78 or 79? It would have been around the same time is my point. Um. You ever like look at these and go, I wonder what was happening in like pornography and media that like these people were suddenly all doing this. But I I do not ever wonder that. Um, I don't feel like pornography or media, like, I don't think that they fueled I don't think that they fueled this case. For some reason, I thought Bundy was like 78, 79, and that this was happening right after that. Hold or on, I'm going to tell I, you because... Because I thought Kai Omega was 79. And like, I don't... If I don't have the, like the timeline and notes I made on that sitting in front of me, I don't remember it. But I kept thinking about him the whole time I was reading about this. Yeah, I am... Um... His... You know, he's always so confusing to me because Bundy has three periods... And that's unusual. For it was 1978. What was 78? Which part? Uh, the Chi Omega. Sorry. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So it's like January 78 then? January 15th, 1978. Yep. You're, I, I'm right there with you. Uh, Bundy is a very complicated situation because it's really odd for someone to be convicted and in prison and uh, then, you know, get out twice. And on their way out, commit more crimes, right? Because I don't, I don't know that getting out is the right word for that. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Escaping, um, and I don't know that it's processed very well by by just sort of people that absorb true crime. Uh, what was actually taking place there? So he'd been convicted, right? And he escaped, and kept right on going. And he went a lot of places and did a lot of bad things. But uh, I do think uh, that was just escape. Uh, You know, at the end, Bundy did try to uh, sway uh, postponing his execution date, you know, by saying that pornography made him do it or whatever. But um, I find it, it's excuses. I almost feel like the excuses that are sometimes used at the end are like way harder to juggle than just like not doing the behavior to begin with would have been. What do you mean? Well, like, you know, insanity defenses or pornography made me do it or drugs made me do it or alcohol made me do it or whatever. Like to me, it's all just cop outs, right? Like nothing, none of this stuff made you commit these crimes. Yeah, okay, I'm, that's not really, okay, I'm saying it wrong if that's what you're getting from what I meant there. Because what I was saying was, I think these guys get ideas. Like, I get ideas for episodes based on things that I read, and when I go hunting it, there's something in there that doesn't make sense. So instead of being like that, these guys are bored with their current thing and needing their next level up, so they go hunting 
and they find stuff from the media or they find stuff from a television show or they find stuff from whatever. So I always, so you're right. I really, I took that into like a lot of consideration with, uh, keys, right. I thought like he was probably studying or not studying, but like, I felt like he entertained things and it's weird because with, uh, Gerald Parker, I, I don't feel like this guy ever read a newspaper. I don't feel like he had any clue like what was kind of generally going on around him. And I don't know why I've made that distinction, but like, that's why it seems so different for me. I don't think, I think that this guy probably drank and, uh, or, you know, did drugs or whatever. And I think that he was just a bad guy. You know what I mean? He wanted to go do something, uh, to get whatever feeling it was he wanted to get from, you know, hurting women. And we'll probably see, like, as we talk about his life and this person, uh, Gerald Parker's life and kind of, you know, his early life and then what was leading to all this. I think we're going to see, like, he really despised women. And it's going to be a situation where it's going to be, uh, clear that he's you know killing probably the same person over and over again yeah that's probably the case in a lot of these um i not to be too freud freudian too too freudian (laughs) too too freudian but uh you know it's his mom yeah i know i figured i mean and these guys are both marines coming out on very different ends of, of legal processes that was pretty fascinating to me that's actually what ended up Busting all these cases wide open because he got to him and he uh, he realized the guy was a marine and he had to confess to it. He says there though he read the news. That's why I was bringing that up because he saw it on the news. Saw it on the news. Sorry. And the other part of that was he thought he was on death row, which he wasn't. It was never even contemplated he would be on death row. And so because somewhere in these, I heard that audio somewhere in the Gerald. Parker uh, thought a fellow Marine was on death row for a crime he committed. And that's probably what lended me to think like he wasn't really paying much attention to what he was consuming. Right. Cause we're talking about a crime he committed. Yeah. Right. So you think you would think that that would register, which it did, but he made the presumption that uh, Kevin Green was on death row. So an innocent man was on death row for his crime. Right. Yeah. And so to me, again, the whole case is a fluke. Uh, Kevin Green's exoneration is completely a fluke. However, I feel like that played a vital role in why um, Gerald Parker spoke up to begin with about this particular case uh, that ultimately exonerated Kevin Green. And so I'm glad he misinterpreted whatever he heard. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating that it all worked out. And sometimes I wonder like, okay, so, you know, Kevin Green was in jail for 16 years. Yeah. We're, like, we're going to get to that in the next episode too. I'm going to kind of wrap him up. There's, there's some ties that like come to do with other cases, but I think that's one of the most significant things to me is how they tried to compensate him for 16 years in prison for killing his daughter. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen him talk 
as recently as just a few years ago, I think. And, you know, he's not a bitter person. Yeah. I, um, we're going to talk a little bit about his former wife as well. Cause you know, that's, she's, I, I don't even know how to say like, I think it's fair to say that um, she was a victim and definitely a victim. Yeah. And, you know, her injury put her in a position where she wasn't a reliable witness. And, you know, that's like one of those catch 22 situations where nobody's going to win because the testimony is unreliable, but you can't ignore a victim statement. And um, I can see why, like, you know, if it happened, if it was prompted in some way by someone, uh, you know, shame on them for doing that. But I can see where it's just like this never ending conundrum of, well, she can't remember anything, but she's saying that her husband did it. And like, what do you do with that? Right. But I would have pointed very strongly, uh, in the, in, um, Kevin Green's defense about the, other crime that occurred six days later that was virtually identical to uh, in the same in Tustin in the same place and I was looking up um, I couldn't find like if you were to look through all the crime statistics right uh, these two cases uh, being on September 30th and October 6th of 1979 in Tustin California there they would stick out. Yeah. Yeah, they, they would. I did notice that as I was looking through, um, even in the lead up to, uh, like trying to follow this grant program, Mm -hmm. you you would be able to tell because of the way they divided out the statistics where they get lost is at the County level, but at the local level, they would stand out like a sore thumb. Right. And so to me, investigators should have seen that as something that needed to be explored, right? Now, granted, this is 1979, and, you know, they're not working with um, DNA just yet. And within a, like, short amount of time, uh, we've got, actually, it's not really short. I would say about eight weeks, uh, the victim is saying, my husband did it, right? Yeah. So while it... I mean, that, you know, is it's a logical conclusion, I guess. But to me, to have these two, you know, very similar rapes, because both women were, their heads were bashed in, right? Yeah. And so that's a distinguishing factor to me, because it, it's brutal, right? Uh, yeah. that's, that's a brutal crime. And, you know, in the history of, you know, everywhere, I would say anywhere you saw two in a row like that, it would be like, wait a second, what's going on here? Right. Unless there was some other contributing factor, like in this case, the husband did it right. That was just too easy for them to, um, put together. Uh, but because he maintained his innocence, you know, he went to trial, he was convicted, he maintained his innocence, his entire life. And, you know, something I saw on that show that I was saying wasn't the best. um, It wasn't how I saw the narrative anyway. Uh, You know, his sister was talking about uh, he had considered committing suicide early on after he had been convicted. Yeah. 
And, you know, if he had committed suicide, he never would have been exonerated. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's it's also terrible to think about. Well, well he, didn't, he didn't commit. No, he didn't. But I'm saying it's terrible to think about if that had happened. Oh, yeah, definitely. 